Again, that's Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. And it reads, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for, this plant, for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. You know, the, um, the winter is a great teacher. Winter is a great teacher. And I'm convinced that many of us learned valuable lessons this past week from the winter. I grew up in, in Michigan. And I learned many valuable lessons when it comes winter time. Because that season is a great teacher. I learned at least three things growing up in Michigan that I am confident that all of Atlanta learned as well this past week. The first thing that I learned that you learned, if you didn't know already, is that snow accumulates fast. Now, some folks don't understand that because it falls so slow and it looks so pretty. But you learn quickly that it accumulates fast. And before you know it, you are snowed in. Snow accumulates fast. The second thing that I learned growing up and that most of us learned here, if you didn't know it already, is that nobody can drive on ice. No matter what those of us from up north say and how much we mock those down south, believe me, up north, they're not driving on ice either. Nobody can drive on ice. The third thing that I learned growing up in Michigan, and I'm sure that most of us learned this past week, is that cold is nothing to play with. One minute you think you're playing in it, and the next minute it's all over you. And many people find themselves in dire situations in a moment's notice because cold is nothing to play with. The winter is a, is a valuable teacher. Don't you know and you do understand that for the Christian, however, learning lessons is just part of life. That's what the Christian is. The Christian is a learner. 
that's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a learner. And while the city of Atlanta and the surrounding areas were learning these lessons, for the Christian, there is learning and lessons that are happening every day. Christian, the faithful Christian, is a learner and is willing to be challenged and willing to be corrected and willing to be disciplined if necessary. For the Christian, it is a matter of life, of of submitting to the truth and when confronted with it, willingly embracing it. The Christians do. We learn. And those who do not care to learn, the Bible has a name for them. Bible calls them scoffers and fools. It says this over and over again. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. The the scoffer doesn't want to learn. The scoffer doesn't want to be reproved. The scoffer doesn't want to be corrected. Proverbs 13 and 1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 15 and 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Scoffer, a fool. Is not a learner, and therefore a scoffer and a fool really is not a disciple. Because disciples are those who are willing and eager to learn, to be reproved if necessary, knowing that it is by that reproof that they grow in their knowledge and understanding of Jesus You know what the prophecy of Jonah really is? It's a prophecy of a scoffer who learned the lesson taught to him by God. Jonah was a scoffer. And the prophecy of Jonah really is a lesson learned. It was a lesson to Jonah. It was a lesson to the nation of Israel It is a lesson to us this morning, beloved. And I pray that as we have gone through this wonderful prophecy that we indeed have learned the lesson. If you haven't, I want to reiterate it for you this morning. The lesson that God wanted Jonah to understand. The lesson that God wanted Israel to know and for us to learn this morning is that our God is big. God is big. If Jonah teaches us anything, it should teach us that we serve a big God. A big God. And to be a Christian Beloved, is to have a theology of a big God. 
If you really understand God rightly, as he has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture, then you understand that our God is, he's, he's big. He is, he is great. It's really just to say that God is big is really simply to say that God is sovereign. That our God sees all things, that he knows all things, that he ordains all things, that he controls all things. You go in your average Christian bookstore and you begin to read the popular books that are on the shelves. What you see most of the time are books that have at their center big men and big women. But the Bible It's not about big men and big women. The Bible is about a big God. And in fact, beloved, you can't have a big God and a big you also. And this is what Jonah teaches us this morning. God is big. Jonah, you're not. Jonah is a prophecy of all things great. It really is. You go back and read it from chapter 1 on through to chapter 4, you will be amazed at how often you are struck with the idea of greatness. It's a prophecy of all things great. There are many great things the Bible gives us in, in Jonah. It talks about Nineveh being a great city. It talks about as Jonah is out on the sea talking about God sending a great wind. And that great wind caused a great storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, that God prepared a great fish. And when he sends Jonah, finally Jonah gets it and he goes to Nineveh, what happens? A great repentance and revival breaks out. prophecy of Jonah is a prophecy of all things great, beloved, but there is nothing in the prophecy of Jonah greater than God himself. There's nothing greater than God and his mission. Jonah thought he was great, but what Jonah quickly discovered is that God has a remedy for those types of thoughts. We reorient Jonah and reminds Jonah that there is really no one or nothing really great but God. You know, our lives, if we would be honest, our lives are consumed with things that we believe to be really big deals. Big things. You know, big ideas, big problems, big questions. Big people, big answers. Jonah thought he was big. He thought his problems and his situation were big. And yet as chapter 4 closes, what we learn here is that God is showing Jonah, showing us what really big is. Big is God. And in fact, we look at our text this morning real briefly. We'll see there are three things God wants us to see this morning that he taught Jonah. 
concerning his greatness, his bigness. The first one is, is that God is bigger than your circumstance. The second thing is that God is bigger than your attitude. And third, that God is bigger than your concerns. Let's examine them from the text and lift these points out here from the last few verses of the prophecy of Jonah. God is bigger than your circumstances. By the time we get to the end of chapter 4 on with verse 5 on to through 11, Jonah is resolved that all is lost. He has, he has resolved that there's nothing he can do and that all is lost. He is, he is disgruntled. He feels alone. He feels abandoned. He believes himself ignored by God. And so Jonah is saying, I'm done. I'm done. Forget it, Lord. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Because I'm done. He's overwhelmed by his circumstances and he just wants to be left alone. That's what he's saying. Lord, leave me alone. I'm going over here. I'm going to build this little hut, sit under this hut, watch what goes on, and hope to die. Leave me alone. You know, I'm amazed at how often people express those sentiments. If things don't, don't go your way, the first thing you want to do is just go run away out. Just leave me alone. You want to clam up. You want to shut up. You just want to be left alone. In our home, when our kids were growing up, Whenever, whenever anybody would say to another, one of the kids would say to another child, leave me alone. We'd say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to be left alone. We can arrange for you to be left alone if you really want to be left alone. But I guarantee you, you really don't want to be left alone. But still, this is what often happens. You see, it happens in the church. I say it happened in our relationships. Something don't go the way that we want them to go. People don't do what we want them to do. The program doesn't pro pro progress the way that we want it to progress. And what do we say? Whether we say it with our mouths or we say it with our actions, we just said, I'm done. I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. Leave me alone. This is Jonah. This is Jonah. You want to be left alone. We all have been there. We, we have all been there. But here's the thing, though. God won't leave you alone. Isn't that he just, he won't leave you alone. If you belong to him, if you are the recipient of his grace and his love and his mercy, he knows that what you really need is not to be left alone. You need to be reminded of the fact that he is bigger than your circumstances. So God won't leave you alone. Praise God. Praise God he won't leave you alone. And he doesn't leave Jonah alone. Instead, what God does is remind Jonah that God controlled Jonah's circumstances. God was in control. We see that in, in verse 6 where Jonah decides he's going to build himself this hut, this tent. He's going to create for him a shade. But then 
what God does is show Jonah and remind Jonah that it is not Jonah who actually builds for himself this shade, but it is actually God. God is the one who builds for Jonah a shade. God is the one that builds for Jonah this covering. Notice that God had an appointment with Jonah. Notice that God said that God appointed a plant, a vine. Somebody has said that it was probably a castor oil plant. Sinclair Ferguson said it probably was because Jonah could have used some castor oil right about now. A vine, a plant. God appoints, appoints like he had appointed a fish, like he had appointed a wind. God appoints a vine, a plant, and for this plant to grow up over Jonah and provide for Jonah the shade that he so desires. Because God, it's not Jonah who's in control. God is in control. It's not you and I who are in control. God is in control of the circumstances so that the Bible reminds us it is not us who provides the shade, but it's actually the Lord who is our shade. Isn't that what he says? In Psalm 121 and verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. If you have shade, Jonah, it is because the Lord has provided the shade. Don't get it twisted, beloved. If there is any comfort in this life, it comes from God. You know what Jonah did? Jonah toiled, didn't he? He toiled to bring himself comfort. And yet the comfort that he actually did have was the comfort that came through the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. Oh, how often we really believe that we are actually providing for ourselves. We really do. Whenever, whenever I leave the family and have to go out of town, one of the prayers that I pray is I say, Lord, protect my family while I'm gone. Now, you know the foolishness in that prayer. The foolishness in that prayer is the assumption that he's not protecting them while I'm here. The fact of the matter is that any protection, any covering, any shade, any comfort that we have while I'm here or while I'm gone is because of the mercy and the goodness of God. He provides the shade. He provides the covering. So this plant that God appoints for Jonah comes up and it grows up over him and it provides a shade for him so that the sun doesn't beat him by day nor the moon by night. And notice what Jonah does when his plant grows up that God has appointed for him. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah found his comfort in the comfort rather than in the comforter. This is crucial to understand, beloved. He was glad for the plant. 
but he wasn't willing to acknowledge the planter. Jonah's glad. He's on a whim. He's full of joy. The plant has grown up overnight, and it has covered me better than anything I could do with my own hands. And he is exceedingly glad, filled with joy for the plant. But it's not the plant that should be the source of joy. It's the planter. You don't get all excited for the comforts, beloved. You get excited about the comforter. This is what God desires. Because this is where true joy lies. True joy doesn't lie in the plant, Jonah. True joy lies in the planter. You know, the Bible tells us over and over again that it's the Lord who is your joy. Not only is the Lord your shade, but also the Lord is your joy. For true joy is not found in things. True joy is found in God. And the Bible reminds us of this, that joy is, the, is in the power of God. Joy is in the power of God. Psalm 126 in, in verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. The Lord has done great things and we are filled with joy because the joy is in the power of God. But the joy is not only in the power of God, the joy is in the presence of God, isn't it? Psalm 16 and verse 11. For in your presence is fullness of joy. Joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Joy comes from the power of God. Joy comes from the presence of God. Joy is in the praise of God. Psalm 27 and verse 6. In God's sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. Because joy comes when I acknowledge that it's the power of God. Joy comes when I acknowledge that it's the presence of God. Joy comes when I acknowledge that it is the praise of God. Joy comes ultimately when I understand that it is found only in the person of God. Psalm 43, verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. God is my joy. This is the source of our joy and contentment. It is found in God. Jesus is not only in us our hope of glory. Jesus is in it, our, in us our only hope of joy. Only hope of joy. That's why we sing Jesus you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. That's what Jonah missed. He's exceedingly glad and rejoicing in the plant. It is because, beloved, we rejoice more in the blessings 
than we do in the blesser. How do we know this is true? How do we know this is true? Because it's the lesson that God taught Jonah. It's the lesson that he teaches us. Because not only did God control Jonah's circumstances, God changed Jonah's circumstances. He changed them. In verse 7 and 8. Because Jonah did not recognize God as his comfort in the midst of his circumstances, God changed Jonah's circumstances. Getting all excited about that plant, Jonah? You glad and rejoicing in the plant, Jonah? I got another appointment for you. He had two more appointments, in fact, for Jonah. You know when God has appointments, you don't cancel? And you don't miss. Oops, God, I'm sorry. I'm late. No, you're not. You don't come late, and you don't cancel. He had two more appointments for Jonah, didn't he? He appointed a worm to eat the plant, and then he appointed the wind and the sun to beat down on Jonah. Because, beloved, you do understand that God won't allow us to find satisfaction outside of him. He just won't allow it to happen. Won't find satisfaction outside of him. In fact, he will take away comforts. He will take away comforts, even the ones that he gives. If those comforts and blessings keep us from him. This is what he told, this is what he taught the Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul had these wonderful blessings from God, these revelations of the third heaven, these insights and revelations that no one had seen or heard or, 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 or given the privilege and the blessing of revealing to before. Wonderful, glorious revelations from God, unique. Paul. And then notice what Paul says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But to keep me from getting too puffed up, to keep me from getting too conceited by the revelations I received that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to trouble me so that I don't become too conceited, too puffed up. But unlike Jonah, beloved, Paul rejoiced to know that even the affliction was from God, just as the revelation was. And in this, you see, Paul knew even in the affliction to rejoice. Why? Because Paul was more concerned with the planter than he was the plant. 
Paul was more concerned about giving praise to the comforter rather than the comforts in this life. Jonah, beloved, was not. Jonah was not. And therefore, rather than doing what Paul did and rejoice in the affliction and rejoice in God drawing back the comfort that he had given them, Jonah gets an attitude. And here God not only shows Jonah and us that he is bigger than Jonah's circumstances, but here he shows us that God is bigger than your attitude. And Jonah had one, beloved. Rather than rejoice in God, Jonah gets this bad attitude, you know. He gets, he's miserable. He's dissatisfied with his life. Notice his attitude. His attitude is discontentment. He grew discontented with life. He grew discontented with this situation as God drew back the plant. As God continued to be merciful to Nineveh, Jonah drew back to a life of discontentment and dissatisfaction, so much so that he wanted to die. Discontentment, beloved, is the attitude of dissatisfaction. It is a a longing for a change and a chronic unhappiness until that change comes. It is longing for something or someone else other than God. And therefore being dissatisfied with him. And it is an attitude and a malady that is foremost in our time. Is anything that we know to be true about the human condition, particularly in our culture, is that human hearts are discontent. People make millions and billions of dollars playing upon the fact that you and I are discontented. This evening will be the Super Bowl and people will pay millions and millions of dollars for a little few seconds of your time to show to you how discontented you are. Someone has written a book that says how life gets better while people feel worse. That is so true. That is, that is so true. The quality of our lives improves almost every day. People live longer, there are advances in health that we would not have dreamed about 10 to 20 years ago. There are advances in in, in technology that are changing and advancing and making life easier for us by the day. There are advances in information where you can just click a button and you can find out Literally, this week, I went online and I saw a video of what is happening in Antarctica. Really? There are few places in this world that if you desire it, that you can't 
find, find information like that. He, with all the advances in technology, with all the advances in information, and with all the advances in, in health and all the other advances, we have the happiness and contentment quotients continue to go down. Down and down. And you know what? The world has sold us this bag of lives, and even us as Christians, we have believed it. Because this morning, most of us in here really believe, really believe that it's things and people who make us happy. We really do. We really do. We think that things and people are the key to our happiness. If I can just have a little bit more money, if I can just get a different job, I'm going to be happy. If I can just find the right wife, if I can just find the right husband, I'm going to be happy. If, if we can just have kids, we're going to be so happy. If I can just get that degree, if I can finally, finally retire, oh, I just can't wait to get to my vacation. I'm going to be so happy. Beloved, this, these are the lies the enemy and the world sells to us. Every day. And these are the lies that we as Christians often buy into. Understand, even these good things are here today and gone tomorrow. And how do I know when we buy into them? Because when they go or we don't get them, so goes our happiness. So goes our contentment. So go it all. Here's the lesson that God wanted Jonah to understand and to learn. It's the lesson that we all must learn, beloved. It is the lesson of the secret of true contentment. True contentment. It's the lesson that God wants to teach to Jonah. It's the lesson that he taught. The Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. And here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret, beloved, but you know it really is no secret. It's right there. It's right there. Not in a Bible code. You don't have to decipher it. You don't have to use numbers and numerology and, and, and consult the stars and mediums or anything like that. Really is no secret. It's right there. Christ is the key to contentment. There is no more 
important lesson to learn than the lesson to be satisfied in Jesus. Beloved, I cannot say this loud enough. I cannot impress this upon your heart enough. There is no more important lesson for the Christian to learn than to be satisfied in Jesus. Where, where, is, where, is, where is that person? Where is that man? Where is that woman who is truly satisfied in Jesus? Because I'll tell you something, that woman and man is untouchable. No. The enemy will come to them and find nothing. The world will tempt them over and over again and find nothing but failure. Where is she? You'd be untouchable. But not only would you be untouchable, you'd be unflappable. The storms in life would come. It'd be up one day and down the next. The market would go through the roof and then they would crash. And that Christian man or woman would be unflappable. You see him. Every day, they'd walk through those church doors every Sunday because for them, nothing matters but Jesus. They'd be unflappable. They'd be untouchable. Do you know that man or woman would be unstoppable? God would send them on mission, and they could not be stopped. There's nothing that could stop them from praising their God. There's nothing that could stop them from serving their God. They'd never take their ball and go home. They'd stay on mission until the Lord returns. They'd be unstoppable. Where is, where, where is that woman? Where is that man? You ever wonder, really wonder, what was it that drove the Apostle Paul? It was that. All he needed was Jesus, and he came to realize that Jesus was all he had. And it was enough. It was enough. And that's why he was untouchable. That's why he was unflappable. That's why he was unstoppable. What about you? What about us? Oh, beloved, I don't care. When you understand that God is bigger than your attitude. He's bigger than your discontentment. He's bigger than your grumblings. He's bigger than your anger. And you know that you can trust in him. That's why he can tell you to put it away. Do away with it. Put it away. Put it away. Because I'm bigger than that. 
I'm more than that. I'm greater than that. And you can be too. You can be too. Well, the lesson that God is teaching Jonah, Jonah this, this morning is that God is, is bigger than his circumstances, that God is bigger than his attitude, and that God is bigger, Jonah, than your concerns. He really is. This morning, beloved, he really is. Come down to verse 10. The Bible says, God says to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. You see there that, that word pity means concern. Jonah is concerned about the plant. Really? He's concerned about the plant. Now, beloved, God may be concerned about the plant, too. But his greater concern is Jonah. His greater concern is Nineveh. Jonah is is concerned. He's consumed. He has pity on this plant, and he is concerned like us. Concern ourselves with a number of things. But rarely do we take the time to consider, are we concerning ourselves with the things that God is really concerned about? Jonah's concerned about the plant. That's not God. That's not chief on God's agenda. Because you do understand, beloved, that Jonah's concern for the plant is really a concern for himself. You may think it noble, all Jonah concerned for the plant. No, Jonah's not really concerned for the plant. His concern for the plant is really a concern for himself. Jonah is concerned that he will no longer have the shade. So he's concerned about the plant, but really it's just a concern for his own comfort. Notice how Jonah is concerned for himself because he has lost the shade. God is concerned for the loss in the city of Nineveh. But God is concerned for the lost not because he might lose them, but because they are in danger. Of losing him. And do you see the difference? Jonah is concerned for the plant. Because of what he might lose. God is concerned for Nineveh. Because of what they might lose. Namely. Him. Jonah's concern as you've seen throughout the prophecy. Was only for Israel. God's concern and his mission is much bigger than that. His mission and concern is for the nations. And do you see that's the issue? 
That's the issue in the whole prophecy of Jonah. God's concerns are bigger than your concerns. Jonah, all you're concerned about is yourself and the nation of Israel. God says, I am concerned for the nations. I am concerned that my glory be known not only in Israel, but throughout all the world. This is big. This is big when you understand that God has this big agenda and his concerns are bigger than your petty ones. He has a big agenda. He's bringing his kingdom to bear upon the world. He's changing the face of his people. This is the lesson that you learn. In the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah here is concerned for the nation of Israel. He's concerned that Israel would be saved, that they would have the glory of God, that they would have the knowledge of God. And he doesn't care about the nations. And God says, yes, Jonah, I want my name great in all of Israel. I want my glory shown throughout all of Israel, but I have a bigger agenda than that. It is that my glory would be shown in all the nations. To the Jew first, yes, but ultimately to all the nations. That's what Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us, doesn't it? We're not ashamed of the gospel. It is a power of God unto salvation to the who? The Jew first, Jonah. But then God's agenda has always been the nations. God's agenda has always been the world. And this is what Jonah didn't, didn't understand. Because this is the lesson that the older brother had to learn in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, as the older brother is pouting and as the older brother is disgruntled and discontented and the father comes to him and the father says to the older brother, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It is fitting that you should celebrate and be glad For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That the nations would be coming to the glory of Jesus Christ should cause all of God's people to rejoice. This is the bigness of God. This is the gospel, beloved. The gospel is for your joy. You do understand that Jesus came for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, so loved the world, the nations, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever in the world, in the nations, believe on him, shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Jonah would have hated that verse. But beloved, that is the source of our joy. That God so loved the nations that we are gathered here this morning in praise of him. That his concern was bigger than Jonah's. That's big, beloved. This is great. This is great because this is the gospel. And the gospel is great. Because our God is great. You do understand how big your God is? He's a big God. He's a, he's a great God. He's a, he's a wonderful God. He is an awesome God. He is a strong God. You know, when I was a little boy growing up, my mother's house on Sunday, he was a little, little boy, every Sunday morning as we prepared for, for church, we would um, we'd watch Oral Roberts. Now, don't laugh. Don't, don't laugh. Because you did the same thing. Isn't that right, Steve? That's right. Now, now, when we watched, and, and thankfully my, my children don't have to be subjected to that kind of nonsense, but um, the best part, the best part of the show is when young, a younger Richard Roberts and his wife and, his, and, and singers would come out and they would open up with a song. After the song, everything went downhill after that. But the song was the best part because they'd come out and sing, God is great. God is greater. He's greater than the wisest man. He's, he's greater than the power of sin. He's greater than the gates of hell. He's greater than any tongue can tell. He's greater than the richest king. He, you see, I watched it quite a bit. He's greater than anything. He's greater. He's greater. He's greater. And greater is he that is in me. We're not going to sing that out. But he, then he, that is in the world. This is what Jonah didn't learn. Have you learned that? Have you learned that your God is great? And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Our God is a big God. And he's in us. And he is our hope of glory. The source of our joy. The strength of our contentment.